find what we need today from your word to challenge us to be more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter... That's where we will be this morning, Luke 16. If you're joining us this morning, maybe visiting for the first time, just want to say a word of welcome. Thanks so much for being with us here today at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Uh, we know we're not the only church in Mobile. Uh, we're very well aware of that. There's a lot of good churches here in the city. But let me just tell you who we are. We're a church that values the Word of God. We're a church that believes in authentic worship. And we're a church that is striving to develop a culture of discipling where we are actively involved in one another's lives and walking through um, life together and helping each other follow Jesus more faithfully. And uh, our goal is to be able to just accomplish those things today. And uh, we, we, we put a high priority here on the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We're going through the Gospel of Luke right now on Sunday mornings. Sunday evenings, we're going through 2 Timothy. Just encourage you to come out and be part of that. Wednesday nights, we're taking time to discuss what we are learning um, in Luke and apply that to our lives. Encourage you to come out and be part of that. And by the way, just encourage you, remind you, church family, we're doing the Summer Hospitality Challenge. Summer is quickly getting away from us. If you've not jumped onto that, start inviting people over to your home. We want you to spend the summer together getting to know each other. Luke 16. Wrong assumptions can really uh, get you into a lot of trouble. I don't know if you have said things or thought things like this before, but maybe you've had conversations like this as as you've gone out the door and shut the door. Hang on, I I thought that you grabbed the keys on the way out as the door clicked behind you, locked. Has that happened to anyone before? Or you'll think, "Uh, that'll never happen to me, only to have that very thing that you said would never happen to you happen to you, right? That maybe that's been a conversation you've had. You've been like, I literally said that, and boom, here it's happening to me. Or this time will be different. I know I've done the same thing like 30 times in a row. This time will really be different, right? I'm not going to make that same mistake again, just assuming that this time around, somehow, some way, something will just sort of change. Here's one that I said last week. Hey, we're just going to change a couple of boards out on the fence, kind of get the gate lined up. It'll be about 30 minutes. Yeah, three days later, $80 of little parts and hinges later. Like it's still like a work in progress. That's like every job. It, 30 minutes, fix this little thing on the car, like it'll be great, change the oil, no biggie. And here you are days later, the entire engine is in parts in your garage, right? Does that happen to anyone else or is that just me? Like misestimating or as George W. Bush would say, misunderestimating, like the the scope of a project. Uh, Bad assumptions. Um, Or here's one. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll do it later. I'll have plenty of time. Uh, Procrastinators of the world unite tomorrow, right? Like, that, that's me. I'll do it later. It'll be good. Especially when I'm in, in, in college. The big thing I learned in college was, um, like, which projects could be kicked out the night before and you could still get an A, and the ones that you'd have to start two nights before they were due. Like, the teacher gives you all semester, and you're like, last minute, knock it out. Well, you know what? Sometimes that assumption is wrong. Sometimes the project takes longer than 30 minutes. Sometimes that paper cannot be done the night before. And sometimes when you assumed your spouse brought the keys out, like they didn't because they assumed that you had brought them out. In today's text, we're going to meet, meet someone who had some fatally wrong assumptions. Uh, a story that's just known to us as the rich man and Lazarus, recorded only in Luke's gospel. Follow along as we read it, Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. And just listen to the, the assumptions he has here. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he dressed like an ate like a king every day. 
And there was a certain beggar, a certain poor man named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifts up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass or would desire to pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, the rich man said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. This rich man had some pretty fatal assumptions. He he assumed that, well, I'm Abraham's son, and therefore I should get special privileges because of my, my heritage. He assumed that his earthly condition, like his wealth and his comfort, should just sort of extend into eternity. He assumed that he could negotiate after death a a better settlement of Lazarus could come and serve him and help him out in his eternal condition. He assumed that he could see and what he could see and touch, his money, his food, his clothes, was more important and more real than what would lie beyond the grave. Just set the context a little bit. Last week we looked at the first part of Luke 16 where Jesus is speaking a parable about a rich man. If you look back in verse 1. Um, he's speaking to the disciples. There was a certain rich man, exactly the same way that he, end, he begins this story. So he's using a rich man as the, as the guy in his parable. Um, he's dealing with the issue of how wealth is used. As hard as it is to believe, people back in Jesus' day, just like today, misused wealth, right? Like crazy, right? It's just a natural human thing that throughout history, that people are greedy, that they misuse money, that they want money, that they use money to take advantage of other people. So he tells that parable about the uh, the shrewd steward who used his money to buy friends and then tells his people, make sure you use your money well to prepare for eternity. Now look at verse 14 to set the stage here. The Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things. They derided him. So the Pharisees, even though they're not really the audience, they're kind of eavesdropping on what Jesus has said to the disciples. And they're just like, this is crazy, right? Now it says they were covetous. The word there is they were money lovers. The Pharisees were money lovers. Even though they may, might not have had much money, They loved money. Uh, Sometimes you run into people who, even though they don't have much money, are still really greedy. That's the Pharisees. That's what mattered to them was was money and stuff. And when they hear Jesus say, take your money, take your wealth, and in a faith-based belief in my promises, invest it in the lives of those who need it, they they derided, they mocked him. Literally, the idea is they, 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 they turned the nose up at him. This is crazy. Back in chapter 15, they grumbled at Jesus. Now they are deriding, mocking him. 
their, their value system was this. If God blessed you, you'd have lots of money, right? So if someone's rich, they must be godly. If they're godly, they must be rich. Very simplistic, kind of like Job's friends. Verse 15, he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Like, you guys are just about the outside. God knows your heart. He knows your hypocrisy. The law and the prophets were until John. Now, the underlying assumption that the Pharisees have towards Jesus is that Jesus is displacing the law and the prophets. They're like, we are the true followers of the Torah. And Jesus is kind of coming back and saying, no, y'all are adding rules to what God said, and by so doing, you're actually disobeying it. I'm the one who is upholding the law. Okay, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. He's like, there's a big change that has happened, that the, the law, the prophets, the old covenant, that particular dispensation, if you will, existed until John came. Now the kingdom is broken in, and the kingdom is inviting everyone to come into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail, one brush stroke of the law. He's like, listen, the entire law is going to be fulfilled in, in what I do. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. He's like, here's an example. Even the most minor teaching of the law about marriage is permanent and abiding, and I'm going to uphold it and actually take a higher standard than you do. So he's responding to the Pharisees and their greed by exposing their complete lack of regard for God's law. The Pharisees taught you could just divorce willy-nilly for any, good re- any reason. Jesus is teaching, no, marriage is permanent. Now, the other Gospels, he points out, if a spouse is unfaithful, that would be legitimate grounds for divorce. Uh, Paul adds that if a spouse abandons the marriage... That divorce would be legitimate. But Jesus' point is, I'm taking a higher standard than you in upholding the law. It's with that background now he tells this parable. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's exposing their lack of regard for the law of God and exposing their greed. One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. They're covetous. They're full of greed. He's exposing that, and he's calling them to embrace eternal realities. So he smashes through their facade of loyalty to God's law and then demolishes the entire structure of greed and self-justification that lies underneath it. That's what this passage is all about. The point of this passage is not so much about giving us a blueprint of like heaven and hell. Some people are like, oh, look, people in heaven can talk to to people in hell. Like that's not the, the point. He's using some sort of literary features to make the story work. The point of the story is to show... People who invest their lives in things that don't matter right now will face the consequences in eternity. So here's the big idea. Here's the main point this morning. We must prioritize eternal realities over earthly concerns. That's the the big idea. That is the main point. Eternal realities. Now, the Pharisees, wealth, money, what people think of us. Jesus is saying, no, the eternal concerns, how you use that money for the glory of God should be our utmost concern concern. I know that's been a long runway, but we've now taxied. I think we get the plane in the air here. Let's dive into this this account here. From from this account of the rich man and Lazarus, we are forced to confront eternity. Like That's the big takeaway, eternity and how we use our wealth, how we use our resources in light of eternity. So I want to just break this down into some, some imperatives that I think Jesus would want us to take away from this. When you read a passage of Scripture, there's something that we're meant to understand and something we're meant to do. 
Here's the, here's the first imperative we're to take away is this. Take today's opportunities. So the rich man just lives for here and now, right? He's just living for the here and now, the right now, the stuff that doesn't really matter. And faces the consequences in eternity. Take today's opportunity. So look, let's look at the story, verse 19. There was a certain rich man. Uh, now, that little phrase is identical to the one in verse 1, which is clearly a parable. I, I'm of the persuasion that we're dealing with a parable here. Jesus is not telling like an actual um, historical event, but he's, he's telling a parable. Um, there's a few reasons for saying that. For one, there were very similar parables and stories that were told uh, during the, the first century. The Egyptians had a story that was like this where there was a reversal of fates, and there were Jewish stories where there were a reversal of fates in eternity. He's taking sort of a common story, and then he's going to take it to a really, a really surprising direction, right? Um, so there's a certain rich man. And notice how he's described, he, how he's, he, he's clothing himself in purple and fine linen. You're like, man, purple is a kind of a gaudy color, right? You think about like Mardi Gras, and just like, it's just gaudy. Well, well in the ancient world, wearing purple was the domain of only the richest people. Purple was the, the most expensive fabric available. Uh, the way that they, they were able to dye things in purple was from a certain type um, of fish, and then they would get the dye from it. It was extremely, extremely expensive. To such a degree that only royalty would wear purple. Like royal purple, right? That's sort of the idea. This guy is so rich, he is living like a king. He's not just like, oh, you're dressed nicely. He's the guy who is wearing like the $10,000 suit. He's the guy who's wearing like $1,000 shoes and a Rolex watch. Like, and he's not doing this just when he goes to like hang out with the president. He dresses this way every day. Like this guy's got money coming out of his ears. It says he's clothed in fine linen. That's to say he, the undergarments he wears are of the softest, nicest clothes, the, the, the fabric that no one else would have access to. He is decked out. He's got nice clothes, nice shoes. He's got the newest Air Jordans, right? Like, that's, that's this guy. And it says he fared sumptuously. Well, that's not how we speak today. You know, I fared sumptuously. Like, what does that mean? It means that he feasted lavishly. That's the idea, every day. And the, the tenses in the Greek are not saying that he did this one time, but this was habitual every day. This is just how life was. This is how he used to live. The verse is dripping with the vocabulary of just wealth and excess. He feasted on the finest foods. And the sense of this, that word sumptuously, even conveys the idea of ostentatiousness, where you're just showing off your wealth for wealth's sake. To be like, I'm just showing everyone my bling so they know that I'm like, I'm so rich I can like encrust my handrails in diamonds. Like, boom, just that's, that's me. That's, that's how this guy lived. He, he is famous for being famous, and he, his riches, the whole point of it, it's just to show off how rich he is. Disgusting, right? Like pretty, pretty messed up. He's just flaunting his wealth to everyone. Now, just a quick point. This rich man is not condemned to hell because he's rich. He is condemned to hell because he does not repent. That's very clear in the later part of the story where he says, you know, send Lazarus to my brothers so that they will repent. And then, 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 then Abraham says... If they don't believe my word, they're not going to believe someone who rises from the dead. The reason this guy is condemned is not all rich people go to hell. Jesus is not like a Marxist here being like rich people are just evil and poor people are good. Abraham, who's in our story, was a really rich guy. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who paid for the burial of Jesus, was a really rich guy. Being rich in and of itself is not evil. The point is that riches come with responsibility. And the point here is this man focused only on his own comfort. 
That's like so many people today, right? Just living for our own comfort. That, that, that's pretty much the religion of our world today is what's going to make me comfortable and me happy? Not focusing on eternal realities, but being consumed with only earthly concerns. We today obsess over making our homes look like you know, an HGTV show. We insist on having the latest and the newest iPhones and Androids. Um, I kind of pride myself in having electronics that are out of date. They do the job, right? But it, it can be so easy. I've got to have the newest and the best and the shiniest. Like, if I've got the, you know, the, the iPhone 30, like when we get there, well, I've got to have the 31 when it, like the minute it comes out. And like the one that I liked, I don't like anymore. We're like kids who have you know, the toys, and as soon as their friend has a toy, they don't like the toy that they had because their friend has one. Like, that's how we are, right? We indulge on entertainment. We fixate on our social media statuses. And, man, we're in a world today where you can sort of craft any image you want. Like, there's filters, and I can, here's me, and everybody look at me. Like, it's so easy. We know less than the rich man. Live for the here and now. That's, that's our culture. And our culture gives us so many tools to be able to do that. We can spend more time updating our living rooms than preparing our souls. We can give more attention to football than to eternity. We can expend more energy on politics than personal holiness. If that describes you, the, the fixations like that on just status and wealth and comfort and nice things could very well reveal a soul that is shriveled. That could expose an eternity-ignoring, earth-focused heart. It's serious. That's what the rich man was like. You don't have to be rich to be fixated on the here and now. Yet that's what he did. Now look at the poor man in contrast. And there was a certain poor man, a beggar, named Lazarus. Now some people will say, hey, this is the only place in any of the stories Jesus tells where he uses a name. Therefore, this is not a parable. Um, I get that. For some, some that will say because the name Lazarus shows up, we're dealing with an actual historic event. I'm more inclined to say he's using the name Lazarus to, to, to convey his message. The name Lazarus is the Old Testament name Eleazar. Remember who Eleazar was? That was Abraham's steward, Abraham's servant. Mm, Abraham's going to show up in the story here. It, it, it also conveys this. The name Eleazar means God has helped. So here's a guy whose name means God has helped, who gets no help from any other person. Yet God is his help. It's to say that Eleazar, Lazarus, goes to heaven not because he is poor, but because he has relied on God. Isn't that awesome, right? That, that, that's, that's what's conveyed by this. The poor man, uh, we get his name, which is incredible. The rich man ignores him, sort of steps over him every time he goes out of his gate. Yet God knows him. And Jesus is like, he's got a name, and he matters to God. Now, he's in such a horrible place, he's been dumped at the rich man's gate. It says he was laid at the gate. That's sort of a little too gentle. It's just laid. The idea is sort of, he's just sort of flung there. People are like, mm, drop him off in front of the rich man. The rich man will, will give him scraps. He had been laid at the gate, which suggests he can't walk. He can't move. His body is full of sores, which makes us think of Job. Here's a guy who's got disgusting, oozing sores all over his body, has no ability to treat them. He's disease-ridden. He can't move. He can't walk. And to make matters worse, the dogs are coming up and licking his sores. Now, that's not to say, oh, he had this lovely yellow lab who just hung out with him, and they were best of friends. These are scavengers, right? If you go to, to, some, to some places around the world, there's just dogs laying around on the streets, and they're scavenging, and they're dirty, and they have fleas and diseases. That, that's what's going on here. And in the Jewish mentality, dogs pictured that which was unclean. So here's a guy 
who's got these nasty sores. He's got these, these, these scavenger dogs who are hanging around with it. You just cannot go any lower. You cannot go any lower. Everything about this would have said to the Pharisees, unclean, stay away from that man. A person who has sores like that is obviously under the judgment of God. Someone who is poor like that is obviously under the judgment of God. He must be a horrible sinner. Those were the categories they operated in. Rich man, he's rich, therefore he's good. Poor man, bad, because he's got horrible things happening to them. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. That's just how it works. Jesus, his perception is entirely, entirely different. So this, this parable is a lot, in many ways, much like the parable of the Good Samaritan. It reads like a historical narrative. There are details that are put in there that are like, this sounds like something that really could have happened. And by the way, the point is very much the same. Now it says he was desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The idea is, suggests that he was longing for and desiring this and never got it. So the rich man won't even give the guy leftovers. Like, oh, hey, we had some pita bread left over from lunch. Here you go. Like, he doesn't even get the crumbs from the table. The rich man has absolutely no regard whatsoever for Eleazar, for Lazarus. Every day, the rich man would have walked out of his gate. Here's Lazarus, laying here, beside, laying here in the gutter. He would have come back. There he was, time and time again. He cannot claim that he didn't help him because of lack of opportunity. He cannot claim that he did not help him due to lack of means or lack of wealth. He has excessive money. He has excessive opportunity. And by the way, isn't it interesting that when he's in hell and he looks across the gulf and looks into heaven, he recognizes him. He knows the guy's name. So he, he obviously noticed him, and yet he did nothing. Every day he walked past. He had opportunity after opportunity to do something but was too self-absorbed. He felt no sympathy, took no action, showed no mercy. Now, here's my point as we look at this, this first imperative. Later on, when he's in hell, there's no opportunity, no further opportunity for him to right that wrong. The sense of what Jesus is saying is the time to show mercy is now. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? They shall obtain mercy. So the time to show mercy and kindness and love and to live out the gospel and to live out your faith is now. Right? When, when you get to eternity, there's no do-overs, there's no second chances. Take the opportunities now. Now, this theme is carried on later on in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. Listen to how John, who would have been there when Jesus told this parable, writing decades later in 1 John chapter 2, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. In other words, he's saying, if you understand God's love, you understand that God's love requires you to show love to others. But whoso hath this world's goods, hey, you've got money, you've got opportunity, you've got resources, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Stunning, right? He's saying you've got money and the ability to meet needs and to love people and to, to show them kindness, and you shut that down. He asks a rhetorical question. How can God's love really dwell in you? How can you really be a Christian and have no compassion? John is coming out, right out, saying this. Um, look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. If there's no love, no concern, no compassion, 
for your brothers in Christ, for those made in God's image? John is saying you are not a Christian. That's precisely what we're seeing in our story. The rich man's lack of compassion reveals a lack of saving faith. The time to, 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 to believe in Jesus is now, and the time to live out that faith is now. Right? So we say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Later on, when I get to a different place, I'm going to live like no one else now, so then later on I can be generous. No, the time to be generous is now. Once eternity comes, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Sobering, right? And that leads us right into the second imperative, the first imperative. Take the opportunities to, today to obey God. There's an urgency. The second imperative that I think buttresses the first one is this. Consider eternity's permanence. Consider eternity's permanence. So one of the, the, the big takeaways in this story, and really the most sobering reality, is this reversal of eternal fates. So verse 22, uh, we, we have really the, the big turning point in the story. Both guys die. There's, a, by the way, a lesson there for all of us. All of us are going to die. Like We don't like to think about it, but it does not matter how much money you have, how much wealth you have, you will die. Right? It doesn't matter your status. It does not matter your... It's going to happen. Both the rich man and the poor man die. They're equal in their death. Death is that great equalizer. And it's, you know, it's, it's sort of ironic to me. Someone's go walk around, you know, go to downtown to the Magnolia Cemetery. It's pretty pretty interesting because there's some you know, old tombstones and there's a Civil War cemetery. And some of these tombstones are incredibly elaborate. They're like, these people must have been important. And guess what? I've never heard of them before. And probably neither have you. But they regarded themselves as important enough to build these massive monuments over their graves. Like, pretty elaborate stuff. So when we die, we go into the same dirt, right? Like, there, there's, not, there's not any hierarchy here. There's not any pecking order here. Status does not matter. Money does not matter. So with death, the poor man's misery came to an end. And with death, the, poor, the rich man's oppression came to an end. So verse 22, they both died. And notice it says, the beggar, the poor man, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also, and he was buried. The poor man apparently doesn't even get a dignified burial. Uh, the Jewish people uh, back at this time, and even still today, regard the treatment of a body to be of utmost importance, right? The body is made in God's image. It is to be treated with dignity. That is why we as Christians say, you know, the body should be treated well. Uh, it's always been a Christian practice to say you, you bury the body from dust you came to dust you return in hope of the resurrection. Uh, to not bury someone's body was a sign of just utmost disdain. In the Old Testament in Jeremiah, when God's pronouncing judgment on the people, it's like, you guys are going to die and you're not going to be buried. That's to say, you're going to be just completely mistreated and forgotten and treated like nothing. The rich man, he gets a burial. He probably had a lavish funeral. People probably got up at that funeral and said nice things about him. The poor man, probably just thrown into a ditch somewhere. Like, nobody cared about him. Yet, in death, he was carried. There's a tenderness here by the angels. Though he was completely neglected and despised in life, the angels in death carry him to, to heaven, to Abraham's bosom. Rejected in life, he is now rewarded in death. His horrible treatment at the rich man's door is reversed in eternity. Now, what's the deal with Abraham's bosom? Some people read this story and will say, well, this is describing you know, the, the, the abode of the dead, Sheol or Hades, and there's two compartments and then the resurrection of Jesus, this all changes. I think it's reading a little too much into the story. Um, I think Abraham's bosom is just another way of describing heaven. So the poor man dies, he goes to heaven. 
The rich man dies, he goes to hell. I think that's the simplest way to read this. Now, why is it called Abraham's bosom? That's a, that's a weird way to, to refer to this. That language shows up in the, um, the Last Supper. Remember it says that John laid on Jesus' bosom right during the, during the Last Supper? It's how they ate their meals. They didn't sit around a table and chairs like we do. They laid down on couches side by side, and so you're laying horizontally, and someone's maybe just leaning right up against your chest while you're enjoying this meal. That's how they had banquets. They were very intimate, very close, physically close. This is banquet imagery. So to say that the rich man, or the poor man rather, is in Abraham's bosom is to say, in our parlance, in the banquet of heaven, he's seated at the head table next to Abraham. Right? Like that's, that's to say he is honored and rewarded. He's not given like a, oh, you're a poor guy. You didn't tithe too much to the temple, so you can go sit way, way, way down there. To so say you got VIP treatment. You're with Abraham in heaven. That's pretty awesome to think about, right? Uh, when we die, we'll go to heaven. All these saints, I think about that sometimes, be like, let's go talk to Moses. This is going to be great. Like Seating arrangements, so to speak. At the banquet, the poor man is next to Abraham. That's beautiful, this reversal that happens. He's gone from laying at the rich man's gate to not only are you in heaven at the banquet of, the, of, the, of eternal joy, you're in a place where you are equal with Abraham. Like, that's, that is something. That's, I think, what is conveyed by Abraham's bosom. Rather than saying this was, you know, where Old Testament saints went before the death of Jesus and now we go to heaven. The, 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 I think the teaching of the Bible is that believers in all ages, when we die, we are present with Christ. Um, now, not a big deal. We're not going to split the church over that, but that's just how I'm reading this. In contrast, look at the rich man. In hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Throughout the Bible, hell is presented as a real place. Sometimes it is described by fire, sometimes of darkness, other times of weeping and gnashing of teeth, other times of torment. Like, I don't know what all of that means except to say that it's really, really bad and it is horrible. Revelation describes it as fire and brimstone that burns forever and ever. And the Bible clearly states that those who are in hell are conscious for all eternity. Like it is absolutely a terrifying reality what is described of hell. However, remember this, we are dealing with a parable, right? So verse 23, we're dealing with this parable, and there's this, this, this theme that Jesus brings in of how they're communicating back and forth. I, I don't believe that Jesus is teaching that people in heaven and hell can talk to each other. I don't think that's suggested anywhere else in the Bible. Don't build theology on parables. Get the main point, which is how we live now determines what our eternity will be like, right? That's the main point. Don't, don't focus on earthly concerns. Focus on eternal priorities, But for the sake of the parable, we have this dialogue between Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man, which is very insightful as Jesus puts these words into these individuals' mouths. So we get the rich man. He sees Abraham. He sees Lazarus, and he cries out, Father Abraham. So he's like, hey, Abraham, I'm a descendant of Abraham. He's Jewish. This would have been shocking, by the way, to Jesus' audience, the thought that a Jewish person would be in hell. Oh, no. Right, like you're in the right line, and God's promises to Abraham belong to you. This would have been shocking that this individual would not have automatically been ushered into heaven based on their ethnicity alone. Father Abraham, he's presuming that he's in the line of Abraham, though he's not a true child of Abraham because he doesn't have faith. Have mercy on me. Now, the irony here is the rich man never showed any mercy whatsoever to Lazarus. 
And yet now he presumes, once life is over, to demand mercy from God. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Did you catch this? In life, he regarded Lazarus as just a body to step over. And even in hell, while he's undergoing eternal punishment, he still looks at Lazarus and is like, oh, he's my errand boy. Something to remember that those in hell, I think, man, people in hell must be full of regret and they must be really repentant and then God's just not letting them repent. No, people in hell still have their sin nature and for all eternity continue to rebel against God. Right, apart from the spirit of God, apart from the grace of God, nobody can repent in life or in death, right? In hell, by definition, it is the complete absence of any of God's grace and kindness. Therefore, there is no repentance in hell, only continued rebellion, and we see that here. The rich, man's, the rich man is upset about his suffering, but he is not concerned about his soul. The only thing he is concerned about, just as he was on earth, on earth he was concerned about comfort and ease. You know what he's concerned about while he's in hell? Comfort and ease. There's no change of heart. There's no repentance. Just anger and frustration at the torment he is undergoing. Just remind yourself of that when you begin to question the justice of hell. How can God, a good loving God, send those to hell for eternity? Because for all eternity, those in hell continue to shake the fist at God. Even as they undergo suffering, they they are in rebellion against him. And that's very, very clear in this text. So there's been this great reversal, this eternal reversal. Jesus had said earlier, just back in Luke chapter 13, look back in Luke 13, verses 28 and 29. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Pharisees, you're not going to just enter heaven because you were good Pharisees. You're going to weep and wail when you realize you are excluded from the kingdom. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down at banquet in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and first which shall be last. A great reversal. Those who presumed that they would go to heaven are actually in hell. And those who in and of themselves recognize, I don't deserve heaven, I deserve hell, are actually the ones who make it to heaven. There is an eternal reversal that happens. But perhaps the most sobering part of our story is is Abraham's response. Look at verse 25, back in Luke 16. Abraham said, son. Abraham recognizes him. He is is Jewish, this individual. He is a descendant physically of Abraham, though not spiritually. Remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. You had a good life. Lazarus, Lazarus had a horrible life. Neither can they pass. I'm sorry. Um... But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. There has been a reversal. You had a great life. You had an easy life. Lazarus had a horrible life. And you never repented and trusted God and used your wealth to serve and better Lazarus. Stunning statement, right? The rich man had enjoyed his best life now. Um, To quote John MacArthur, if you are living your best life now, you are going to hell. Right? If this is as good as it gets, this is it. Uh, the, the, the rich man had his best life now. He lived for earthly existence. Now he was reaping the eternal consequences of those choices. Now, again, Jesus is not saying that if you have a hard life physically, you just automatically go to heaven. The poor man, Eleazar, is in heaven because he trusted and relied in God. And the rich man, 
not given his name, is in hell because he rejected God and lived only for himself. Verses 30 and 31 make it very clear. It's repentance, not riches, that is the determinant factor here. But we go on. Not only does justice preclude Lazarus coming and bringing some water to hell for the rich man, but verse 26, and beside all this, on top of all this, between us and you there is a great gulf. The word here is chasm. There is a grand canyon between the two. There is this impassable chasm between heaven and hell that cannot be passed by anyone. What is being said in verse 26 is that eternal punishment is indeed just that. It is eternal. There are no do-overs. There's not after a certain amount of time people in hell are brought back and given another chance. There is no purgatory There is no, once your sins are atoned for, then you'll be able to come to heaven. This life is all we have got to prepare for eternity. And those who refuse to receive Christ will have the same fate as the rich men, no matter what your financial condition is like. And those eternal destinies are fixed. They are permanent. There's no one who is in hell who will one day sort of be, well, we're going to let you come to heaven just just because. By the way, by the same comfort, there's no one who is in heaven who will be kicked out, of, kicked out and sent to hell. That, that, that's really comforting me, by the way. You're like, okay, I get to heaven, and then I like royally mess up in heaven somehow, and God's like, you're out of here. That's not going to happen, right? We're eternally secure in Jesus, a great gulf that there's, there, there's no passing from one to the other, no changing of statuses after death. Now, this should call all of us to seriously consider the permanence of eternity. I cannot think of anything more serious for you to think about right now. So whatever else you're thinking about right now, stop it and think about this. Where will you spend eternity? Life is so fleeting and short. Some of you have gotten further along in life than I have, and you'll tell me that, like, man, it just blows by so quickly. And you never know how long it's going to last. You don't know how long, when, when the day will come when you will be called home. So you're granted 70, 80, 90 years. What is that compared to eternity? What is that compared to endless time? Like that's just it's not even a blip on the radar screen. It's not even a, a single grain of sand compared to the entire ocean. It's not even a grain of sand compared to the entire cosmos. You've seen those pictures coming from the James Webb telescope, and it's just like, that's awesome. There's light that we're seeing through that telescope that's not even made it to Earth yet. Like, think about the expanse of, like, eternity compared to time. There is no comparison. We need to consider the permanence of eternity. You need to consider the condition of your soul before God. And not just assume that, well, I'm sitting in church this morning, so obviously I must be going to heaven. This rich man, there, there's no reason to think this rich man was particularly wicked. It wasn't, we were not told that he murdered. More than likely, he read the Torah. He says, you have Moses and the prophets. He went to synagogue. He would have been regarded as an upstanding member of his community. And he went to hell. Judas Iscariot was a member of the twelve. He preached. He cast out demons. He saw the miracles of Jesus, heard the preaching of Jesus. And when all the disciples are like, who's going to betray you? They're not all like, oh, yeah, it's Judas. We, We always thought he was a bad egg all along. No, Judas looked the part and then rejected Jesus and is in hell today. Serious stuff. You should not just presume and assume that 
because I'm in church or because I was raised in a Christian home or because I'm a cultural Christian or because I prayed the sinner's prayer that you somehow are going to heaven. Repentance and faith, that's what's presented at the end of the chapter. Have you repented of your sins and put your reliance in Jesus and him alone? That's, that's the only thing that, that matters. Serious, sobering call for us to examine our own hearts. This brings us to a third imperative, and I think this is actually the main point Jesus is driving to. It's this, we need to heed God's word. He talks about Moses and the prophets, the the written word of God. The reason why I say that's the high point is there were other stories floating around in Jesus' day where rich people and poor people died and then had a reversal of fates. It was a pretty common trope, a pretty common motif in literature at that time. Like, that's not anything new, having these two people change places. What is sort of surprising is what happens in verse 27. So request number one from the rich man is, send Lazarus to bring me water. All about me. Have Lazarus continue to serve me even while I'm in hell. Verse 27, request number two. Then he said, I pray, I request, I ask thee therefore. Okay, if he can't do that, then I'm asking that he'll do this. That thou wouldest send him to my father's house. Notice he still is like not getting it. Lazarus is still his errand boy. He still views himself as important and the world revolves around me. Send him to my father's house, send him to my family, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, that he may testify unto them, lest they come into this place of torment. Now, for the first time, he actually thinks about other people. But it's still limited to just, well, just my family, just my brothers, just those who are within my household who I grew up with. Still very self-serving focus. Just go warn them so they don't come here either. Send Lazarus from the dead. Have Lazarus rise from the dead. Go to these guys. Warn them so they won't come here. Abraham saith to him, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Okay, Moses standing in for the, the, the law. They have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They've got the law of God. And then they've got the prophets, which is everything else in the Old Testament. They have the Bible. They have the word of God. They go to synagogue, they hear it, they read it, they understand it. It says, let them hear them. Now, we read that let, okay, just allow. That's actually an imperative in Greek. They must hear, they must heed, they must listen to the Bible. That, that's the only hope they have. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, he's like just straight up disagreeing. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if, if there's a miracle, then they would repent. If someone rose from the dead and went and told them, don't, you don't want to die without Jesus because you'll go to hell, then they'll really listen up. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded, neither will they be brought to a place of faith and confidence and trust, though one rose from the dead. The call here is very simple. They must hear. They must heed the word of God today. Now, I say this is the main point because we sort of started with this back in verses 14 to 17. Why did Jesus mention this thing about the law? Bookends this section. So if you want to escape eternity in hell, the instructions are going to come from the word of God. They're not going to come from experience. They're not going to come from intuition. They're not going to come from, I think this. They're not going to come from a Facebook poll. They're going to come from the written, inspired word of God. So send Lazarus to warn them. Abraham's quite clear. You have the word of God. Now, how would the word of God have helped him and his brothers? Well, it would have laid out. Thou shalt not covet. 
Here's God's standard and all this greed that they have. That's contrary to the law of God. They would have read how the law says you should love your neighbor as yourself, which, by the way, includes Lazarus. They would have read how they should have reserved a portion of their, of their harvest, of their funds, to care for the poor of the land. They would have read in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that God's basic requirement is that you love mercy, you do justly, and you walk humbly with God. In other words, you care about those who are poor and oppressed. They would have understand from the book of Amos that God hates oppression, right? And people just taking advantage of the poor because they can. That's what this rich guy did. They would have quite simply, if they had truly listened and heeded God's word, they would have seen their sin as God sees it. That's what the Bible does. That's what the law does. It's not, okay, I'm going to read this and I'm going to try really hard. It's, I read this and there's no way that I can live this way because my heart is so selfish. They would have realized that Man, the old covenant only condemns me. My only hope is the promise of a new covenant where God will give me a new heart that will love him and obey his law. If they had read and heeded and heard God's word, they would have understood that there was one coming, a prophet coming like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, who would declare the word to them. They would have understood Isaiah 53, that there's going to be one who's going to bear away the sins of God's people, and they would have put their trust and their hope in that one. Oh, they heard the word audibly, but they didn't, they didn't believe it. That's the issue. By the way, the law of God does the same thing for us today. And maybe you're here, you're like, am I, am I presuming on my eternity? Have you ever seen yourself as a sinner exposed by the law of God? Someone who is deceptive and hard-hearted and idolatrous and unconcerned with the things of God. That's sin, and it deserves God's judgment because he is holy and because he is righteous. You see, we see the rich man's hopelessness. He insists that, oh, if there's a resurrection, my brothers will, will repent. They'll, they'll believe. They'll, they'll, they'll change. They won't be like I was. They won't live in this, following the steps that I followed. And, but Moses makes a, a very, or Abraham makes a very telling statement in verse 31. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't be persuaded by a miracle, which is to say this. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. By the way, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here today. We want people coming who aren't Christians. We want you to come and listen and ask questions and, and reach out. Like, I'm available after the service to have conversations and to answer questions, and you can email me. Like, we want that. See, I'm here. I'm not a Christian. But I just can't believe Christianity unless there is more, more evidence, more proof. This verse is saying God has given you all the proof that you need. Your issue is not a lack of evidence. It is a lack of of repentance. Give us evidence and we'll believe. Show me a resurrection and we'll get right. And Abraham says, no, if you fail to heed and hear the written word of God, you'll be so hardened that no miracle will change your heart. Howard Marshall writes this, miracles will not convince those whose hearts are morally blind and unrepentant. They will not be persuaded. You want proof? Someone really did rise from the dead and they still do not believe. There was another guy named Lazarus who rose from the dead. And if you read in John 11 and John 12, you find out that his resurrection, rather than triggering a massive revival, triggered a massive conspiracy to where the leaders are like, let's kill Jesus and Lazarus. Now, different Lazarus, but I think that the play on the names is, is telling. There's another guy who rose from the dead after three days. His name's Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, what did the, what did the people do? They said, Shh, we'll pay the guards off and tell everyone that the body was stolen. And they refused to believe. 
Perhaps the greatest miracle, the resurrection of Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world, and people still refuse to believe. Others will say, and maybe this is you, I've been through some horrible stuff. I, Pastor Sam, like I've, I've been through abusive relationships, cancer, sickness, and I see this evil. I, I cannot believe. It, 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 if there's a God out there, he would be loving and kind, and he would come to this world and experience what I've experienced. Guess what? He did, and they murdered him. The issue is not lack of evidence. It's lack of repentance. Our only hope, beloved, to escape the fate of the rich man It's not to go and be like, well, I'm going to go be a poor man, like poor men go to heaven. No, that's not the point. The only way to escape that fate is to flee to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's our only hope. And here's the reality. We are living surrounded by an embarrassment of riches. You're sitting in a church this morning where I've been preaching for like an hour, right, from the Bible. And there's pew Bibles in front of you and hymns that proclaim the gospel. And you can go on to YouTube and watch good gospel sermons and follow podcasts and read books and get articles. We've got more access than any other group in the history of mankind to the truth of God. The writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you, you hear this message today and walk out, you are under the condemnation of God. You will be held accountable for the truth that you have heard. None of us complain, can complain that we didn't really know. So our only hope is what Jesus did on the cross. The trajectory of Luke's gospel goes on where he's rejected. He dies in the place of sinners. As we've been singing today, his redemption. I don't want this to be just a hellfire brimstone message, right? We're going to preach about hell. But this needs to be a gospel message to say that God is just and holy. We are sinful, but Jesus has died for you. And if you will repent and believe, he will forgive all sin. He will justify you. And here's what else he'll do. He'll give you a new heart. Right? The gospel is not just God forgives you and you're once saved, always saved. A wand has been waved and you can go on with your life. The gospel also gives you a new heart where you won't live like this rich man. Right? You, you will, like the people in First John, you will open your heart to needs around you. You will begin to develop compassion and love towards those around you. That's, that's evidence, that's fruit that the heart change has happened. The great hope of the new covenant is that God both forgives our sin and changes our hearts. What a promise, right? So the question is, will you heed? Will you hear the word of God? We've had time go by this morning, and before, before too long, like today's going to be over, and then another day is going to be over, and another day, and another week, and another year. And guess what? You don't ever get to rewind the tape. So the question is, are you living in light of eternity, or are you only living for earthly concerns? That's that's the question this text makes us ask. Don't live with the assumption that you're in just because you are, quote-unquote, blessed. Don't assume that you're in just because you pray every so often. Don't just assume that you're in because of your heritage. Don't assume your eternity. It's too important. Trust and rely on Jesus. Father, that we take seriously the challenges of your word.